your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I do appreciate um, the many kind words uh, this morning. I appreciate Pastor Tone and Pastor Matt and uh, Bill Boyce, who's president of the Elder Board, for sharing. I, I, didn't, I didn't learn a few things. Um, I didn't know that my baldness was so important to pastoral ministry. I also am worried about Tone. Pastor Tone does not look bald to me. So I'm wondering if we made a mistake by sending him down there. The other thing that's very true, when I came in 1989 to this church, I was not bald. And uh, one more thing. I don't know what's going on with Pastor Matt, but if he thinks I'm going to serve here for more than 35 years, he's out of his mind. <laughs> it's crazy. That's not happening. Anyway, I do appreciate, uh, many of you have said kind things. You've sent me notes. You sent Denise and I notes. You're praying for us. I uh, just appreciate all of that. And, and, you know, by God's grace, I'm going to do everything I can to do what needs to be done. But the reality is, if you think I'm the one who's going to pull us through COVID single-handedly, you're out of your mind. If you think I'm, if you think I, I'm the key to the whole thing, that's not true. That's not what the scripture teaches about us, the church. And in God's providence, uh, this was sketched out months ago, the series on Ephesians. I think it's appropriate that we look at Ephesians 3. Because I think in this text, we, we get a vision for what we need to be. We get a vision for, for what, how we need to view ourselves in light of who we are as, as, as this, this new entity called the church. We need to understand what that is. We need to understand what this place is about. It's not about me. It's not about the pastors. It's not about the staff. It's not about the elders or the deacons. The whole thing is about God and his glory and Jesus Christ. So we need to see this vision. And I want to break it up into five pieces of this that we can look at this morning that is so absolutely crucial for us to get a handle on. So let's look at the first piece of this vision that all of us need to, to, to see and, and, and to let it, let, let it guide us and, and let, us, let it grip our hearts, so to speak. Paul begins his section uh, and he starts to write this and it's, it's like he's getting ready to pray and then he takes a little break. Okay? That, that prayer will pick up in, in verse 14. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. It's like he's going to enter into a time of prayer and then he, it's like he goes to another train of thought. He says, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, it was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Now, Paul wrote about the, a mystery uh, back in Ephesians 1. When, it, when he says in verse 9 of chapter 1, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
Paul is referring to the fact that he describes that, that God in Jesus has this amazing, vast purpose to reunite the world under his authority. And in chapter 3, then, in this first piece of the vision we need to get a handle on, he's going to give us a part of how everything is going to be reunited in Jesus. This is verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed in his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What Paul is saying here is that one piece of this large plan to unite all things in Christ is that he has already begun that process in uniting Gentiles and Jews into this new community, into this new humanity. This is is what the mystery is. The mystery is not that Gentiles would come to faith in God. That, 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 That was throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the Abrahamic covenant which, which spells out redemption history, says all families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. And there were plenty of Gentiles who came to faith, like Ruth and Rahab and others. You read the Psalms, it talks about let the nations be glad. It was not the mystery that Gentiles could, could be brought back into a right relationship with God by faith. The mystery was that Jews and Gentiles would be together in the new man, Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, and that they would be on the same spiritual plane. Fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We saw a couple of weeks ago that, 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 that in, the, in the court of the temple, Gentiles were only allowed to go a certain um, way in. And then there was a literal wall that kept them out from the intimacy that the Jewish people enjoyed. Even Jewish people were not allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And what Paul is saying here is that the main step, a foundational step in uniting everything in Christ was to unite Jews and Gentiles into this new man, this new man, this new community, and that they would be on the same plane, so to speak, spiritually speaking. Fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What this means for us at Stonehill, the vision we need to have is that God's plan to reconcile everything under his authority, one of the main ways he's accomplishing that is in the new man, the new community, the church of Jesus Christ, where he's brought together Jew and Gentile into the same community. We, Stonehill, are ground zero for God's plan to unite all things under heaven and in earth. We, of all people, are, 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 are the foundation of his entire plan to fix this broken world. And we, of all people, have the privilege of being part of God's rescue effort to redeem the world. Now, that's incredible. I'm willing to go bald for that idea. I am. The question is, do you really embrace that purpose? Do you see that vision? 
You see, we, we come to church, we attend church, that, that's fine, you do that. But what is happening here? What God is attempting to do through us is the most amazing reconciliation project the world has ever seen. The uniting of all things in Christ begins in the new community, the new man Paul talks about, where Jew and Gentile are brought together in the same community, on the same spiritual plane, no more wall of hostility, and that we are ground zero of God's great reconciliation effort. This famous story is told, you probably may have heard it, a patron of a large building project comes up to some of the workers and he asks one of the workers, well, what's your job here? And the man said, I'm, I'm just here making a living. He talks to another one of the workers and says, what's your job here? He goes, I'm, I'm chiseling stone. He talks to a third worker and says, what are you doing here? And the man responds, I am building a great cathedral. You're not just coming to church here. You're not just sitting on home and, and being online. You're not just attending some small groups. You're not just doing some good, nice little things here. What we are about, what the vision for God's new community, this new man, is that we are at ground zero of seeing the world come together under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It is the greatest privilege that we can have. It makes everything else that we do in some sense superfluous to this effort. We need to see it. We need to embrace it. We need to believe it. This is the vision for the new community, the new man that Paul is talking about. And not only do we need to have a vision for what church is and what we're trying to do here at Stonehill, we're the local, one of the local expressions of this new community, this new man that God is bringing together. But we also need to see that everything we do in our life is connected to God's great redemptive process. So when you go bring a meal to somebody and bring some care and love to a family that's hurting, you are part of seeing the world put back together a little bit. When you've got a problem at work and, and then there's confusion at work and you, 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 by your integrity and by your skill, bring together your team that you're working with and it's a little bit more organized and a little bit more effective, you are doing the work of reuniting the world under his authority. Everything that you do, when you, when you, when you, when you, when you, you know, rake the leaves off of your lawn, when you, when you, when you clean your house, when you, when you try to help your child in the middle of this virtual schooling, and try to help them learn a few things. You are part of God's great effort to bring the world a little bit under his authority. And we would do well to orient every aspect of our life and connect it to the purpose of God who he's accomplishing in the world. But particularly through God's people, the church. That's the first vision. The second vision is this. Let's go to verse 9. He says... Again, talking about his, the grace that was given to Paul to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. In verse 9, it says, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan 
of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Again, I think Paul is referring, yes, to the new man, the new community that he's brought together with Jews and Gentiles on the same plane. But when he mentions create, who created all things, I think he's talking about even the larger purpose of God restoring the broken world to its rightful place. And then in verse 10, it says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And what in the world does that mean? What Paul seems to be saying here is that we, the people of God today, as we live out this vision of seeing that the world reconciled to God in Christ, as we participate in that in every aspect of our lives, and as we, as we work together as the people of God, we are supposed to live in such a way that we display the beauty and glory and wisdom of God so that the Beings in the heavenly places, this would be angels, both good angels and fallen angels, will be able to look at the church, see how we're operating, and they would get a glimpse of the wisdom of God. I know some of you are like, really? Okay, come on. Angels, demons? That's what the text says. In other words, the church, this new community that God is forming with Jew and Gentile on the same plane, is designed to display the beauty of God, not simply to the world, of course, but to the angelic beings. We are supposed to display, in the way we conduct ourselves, the beauty and wisdom of God to display the glory of God's grace so that even angelic beings who can look in and, and see the beauty and glory of God. And what does that mean? Well, it's, I'll tell you what it means. The church is not really about us. It's not about me. It's not about the elders. It's not about the deacons. It's, it's, it's really not about you. It's are we going to live in this fundamentally different way to show the angelic beings, to show the universe, but the, particularly these angelic beings, to show the world the beauty and glory of God. What's at stake what we do here and how we treat each other and how we serve one another and how we conduct ourselves is to show the angelic beings how great and glorious God is. It's about him and his glory, not about us. I think if we're honest, we sometimes can take church and make it all about us. And believe me, plenty of pastors in the world the last 2,000 years have made, made it all about them. It's not about us. It's all about God. What's at stake here in how we conduct ourselves? What's at stake here when, when you're an usher in the morning, when you're on the AV team, uh, you know, trying to get the, the, out on the live stream, when you're part of a small group, when you're caring for someone, when you pray for someone, when you care for someone, when, when you share the gospel with, with someone outside the church, all of that is about what? The glory of God to show the beauty and manifold wisdom of God to, even to the angelic beings. That's the second vision. The third vision is that all of this is empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So Paul is saying he was made minister of this, this revelation, this mystery, to proclaim the glory of this to the world. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... 
This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Notice that when Paul talks about this, all throughout this section of scripture, he says that it was the grace of God that revealed to him this mystery. It was the grace of God that empowered him to preach and do the ministry. It was the grace of God. It was the power of the gospel, the grace of God that allows him to do this. And when he says to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, I don't think Paul is just, it's like some false humility. I think Paul really believed he was the least of all the saints. Why would he think that? Why? Because before he came to Christ, he persecuted Christians. Before he came to Christ, read Acts 8.1, he approvingly stood by while Stephen was stoned. He was complicit in the murder of one of the leaders of the church of Jerusalem. Paul, although he was super religious, although he was the Pharisee of Pharisees, although he was, he was in some sense scrupulous in terms of his attempting to follow the law of God, he had got it all wrong. He wasn't approaching God by grace. He didn't understand. He didn't believe. He acted out of that unbelief and terrorized the early church in Jerusalem in particular imprisoning people, complicit in murder. And I think for Paul, when he realized, when God opened his heart up and he saw the gospel and he put his faith in Christ and he knew that he was forgiven, when he looked at his past life, he says, how in the world could God ever save me? But how in the world could God appoint me to be this preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles? And just think about this, folks. He was scrupulously Jewish. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. For God to tell Paul, I want you to take this mystery out to the people and say that now in this new man, he writes about Ephesians 2, Jews and Gentiles are in the same community, completely united by Christ, but together the wall of hostility has been broken down. This must have offended every Jewish bone in his body. And I think Paul had a deep awareness that what God had done for him and his grace propelled him in everything that he did. It was the gospel that was the power of God for salvation for Paul. It was the grace of God. It wasn't Paul's ingenuity. It wasn't his moral uprightness, although he had a lot of moral uprightness, but he had a lot of sin. He felt he was the least of all believers. And yet because of grace, it empowered him to take the message of this reconciling power and gospel to the world, particularly to the Gentiles. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. When my daughter was very young, uh, she, she became a Lord of the Rings person. Um, it might have been a little imbalanced, but that was poor parenting. She was so into the Lord of the Rings that she had learned to write in Dwarvish and Elvish. She actually wanted to translate John 3 into Elvish and pass it out for the third movie, The Return of the King. That was her evangelistic effort to the Elvish people, Elvish-speaking people of the world. She's told me that I needed to use a Lord of the Rings illustration. So in the last three weeks, 
because I know you're tired of Dallas Cowboy illustrations. I don't try not to do that. Most of you can't even understand what I'm saying. I read, I read the trilogy, and I was looking for this one illustration, and I was so sure it was in there, and then I realized the illustration I was thinking about was not in the book, but it was in the movie. So my apologies to Tolkien purists. But here's the quote. This is Aragorn, who was the king. He was leading the good army against the forces of Sauron. The black gate opens and the menacing forces of evil and darkness are coming and Aragorn talks to his people. He says this, sons of Gondor, of Rohan. I'm, I'm sorry if you've never seen the movie, but it'll only take you nine hours this afternoon. You can get caught up. He says, my brothers, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all, all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. Now, maybe I'm the only guy who gets juiced up by that, but I like that. Tolkien fans, you think this is heresy. I'm sorry. I don't fear that in the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of transferring from a pastor of 35 years, in the midst of the, the confusion in our political scene, uh, the difficulties of racism, all of these things are huge issues that make, um, you know, they're obstacles, right, for us. I don't fear that we're going to fail particularly, but not because I think we're great, okay? I don't say this is not the day we're going to fail I, be, because of you and I and our strengths and our wisdom and our intellect. No, I say that because we have received the gospel of grace, this is what makes it possible for us to pursue this vision of uniting all things under heaven and earth in Christ. This is the vision of seeing that it is the church that is at ground zero for God's reconciliation effort to the world. It is this vision of, of displaying to the angelic beings the beauty and glory and wisdom of our God. I don't believe we will fail because we're so great. I believe we won't fail because we have received the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, if the least of the saints, Paul, could be used by God after being a murderer and after being a, a, a terrorizer of, of believers, if God can use him, he can use us. There's nothing in your past that disqualifies you from, from being a, a person who takes the gospel and is used by God to see the world get a little bit more under the authority of Christ. There's nothing in your present struggles or failure that can keep you from doing the things you need to do and from keeping us from doing the things we need to do to be this light to the angelic beings, to display the beauty and glory of God to the world. And there's no future distress or trial or even failure on our part, individually or collectively, that can keep us from being part of God's plan to redeem the world because we are attempting to see the earth redeemed, not in our strength, but through the gospel of Jesus Christ that takes weak people like Paul, like me, like you, and dramatically transforms them 
Because it's his grace and it's his power working in us through grace, through what he does, not through what we do. That brings the vision of God's people into focus and into completion. That's the third vision. It's the fourth vision in this text. It's interesting as he goes through uh, these first three sort of visions of, of who we are by the gospel, who we are in terms of what we're attempting to do to reunite the world under his authority, to display the beauty and glory of God to the angelic beings. Verse 12, he immediately goes to prayer in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. It's interesting that Paul goes back to prayer. In order, in, in order, he goes back to prayer. In other words, because we have been given this access by grace, that Jew and Gentile both can come into the, to, to the presence of God because of the death and, and, of Jesus Christ through his shed blood. And now we are together in this new man that Paul talks about. He then reminds us of the boldness and access we have, the confidence that we can have, not because of us, but because of what Christ has accomplished. And he reminds us that prayer is part of the foundational exercise of the church to see the vision of the church fulfilled. We're never going to be the people who display the beauty and glory of God unless we're on our knees asking God to do that very thing. We will never be the people in our weakness who will display the beauty and glory of God, who will be used by God to see the world come back together a little bit more under the Lordship of Christ unless we pray. Because it's not about us, it's about him. And we don't have the power to accomplish these great visions that God has for us. These are things that only God can do. And when we pray, we acknowledge we can't do it, but only he can. It's the fourth vision. One last. The very end of this text. You might miss it if you read it quickly. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. He's been in prison. Why? Because he's been declaring the mystery of this, this mystery of Jew and Gentile in this same new man, displaying the beauty and glory of God to the angelic beings, how that the gospel of grace is the empowerment for that vision to, to flourish. He's in, he's in prison because of that. And apparently the believers in Ephesus were losing heart. They were getting discouraged. They may have also been getting discouraged, thinking that if that happened to Paul, might it happen to us? What I think Paul is saying is, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering through, which is your glory. he's, He's acknowledging that one of the key elements, and this is part of our vision as a church, that part of the way the church moves forward, part of the way it displays the manifold wisdom of God, part of the way it is used by God to extend the reconciliation power of the gospel to the world and to see the world begin to unite in Christ, part of the way that has to happen is when the church suffers. It's just the nature of the situation. Jesus' whole plan to reunite the universe under his authority, how did it start? When Jesus suffered and died in our place for our sins, it was suffering that was the genesis of this new plan that, 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 that God was beginning to outwork through this new man, this new community, this new humanity. And I don't know how to tell you this. But the only way we are going to be the church and fulfill the vision that 
God has for us, that Paul outlines for us, is probably going to involve a fair amount of suffering for us. I mean, right now, a lot of us are suffering with COVID. A lot of us are suffering with different aspects of what we are going through. But let me tell you, if you're going to be, we're going to be the people of God and we're going to love one another and serve one another and, and be together with one another, that's going to cost you emotional energy to connect with other believers who are in difficulty. Said another way, I think if some of us, again, I appreciate our country. We have lots of freedom, freedom to share the gospel. But I dare take it if each of us got a little bit more aggressive in praying and engaging with our neighbors, friends, and coworkers and looking for opportunities to share the gospel, and you started to do that more than you did this past year, you'll get pushback. I do. I've been told in the last year, I've been told six times that Christianity is the problem with the whole world. I was also told by a friend, I wish Christianity was outlawed. That's not fun. But that's part of suffering. Part of suffering is we we become very generous with even our financial resources to see God help us to do the things we might be called to do as a church. All of this is part of the vision for the church and we must embrace it. Some of you may have read The Insanity of God. It's a story of... uh, global worker who was working in a country that was uh, where Christianity was outlawed. He got to know some of the people in that country and he met a deacon from a church way out in the middle of nowhere. It's a, it's a place where Christianity is disallowed. It's a place where you're not allowed to go to church. The pastor was arrested in this particular church, was taken to prison. The pastor's family was uh, suffering because it was not a lot of financial remuneration. They were suffering. They had some kids that were sick. And a deacon in the church was woken up in the middle of the night and said, you need to go and give supplies to the pastor's family. You need to do it right now. And the deacon says, wait, it, it, there's a snowstorm out here. I, I don't know if I can make it. Um, it's pretty dangerous. I, I'm not sure my animal can get me there on horseback. I'm not sure I can make it. This is dangerous. And all he kept hearing was, God seemed to be saying, go, do it. You're a deacon for crying out loud. You must do this for the pastor's wife and the family. Finally, he kept arguing with God and said, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'll ever make it back. And what he felt he heard, the deacon heard was, I've told you to go. You don't have to come back. So he went. If we are going to fulfill the vision that God has for us, if the manifold wisdom of God is going to be displayed here at Stone Hill, the lo- one of the local expressions of this new community, if we are going to be people who take the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it doesn't matter what our past or our present or our future struggles, we will go in the power of the gospel. We will see that the gospel is lived out more consistently and is shared more widely with others. If we are going to be the, the place where, since Jews and Gentiles are united together in this new man, and this is the genesis of God's redemptive plan for the universe, we're never going to get there. Unless each and every one of us and the church corporately is ready to pour out its life for those around us. And that will involve suffering of all kinds. So let me pray for us. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his word. I pray that you would give us a biblical vision of what we're trying to do here at Stonehill. 
I pray that we would see that your plan to unite all things in Christ is centered in your, your, this new community that you've created where Jew and Gentile are on the same plane, where all of us have access to the, to, to the holy of holies through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us to see that what we are about is not about us. It's about displaying the beauty and glory and wisdom of God to the angelic beings. I pray that we would see that it's God's grace that motivates and empowers us, not our skills, not our wealth, not our intellect. It's all grace, Lord. Help us to see the prayer as a component and suffering is also a component of that vision that you've laid out before us. And I pray that as you help us to keep that vision and align our lives with these five pieces of vision, I pray that you would use us in a powerful way to see the beauty and glory of Christ deepened and extended here in Princeton, in our midst, in the Northeast, and around the world. And Lord, when it may be hard and it may be difficult, it may be challenging in all kinds of ways, Lord, help us to remember that one day we will be part of that great reunification effort. We will be in heaven with you, free from sin, sickness, death. Everything will be put back together by you. And Lord, in that moment, when we see the new world that you are working on now and you will bring in when you come again, when we're in that world, Lord, none of the sacrifices that we make, we will look back on and say, well, that was too much. I I, I think a lot of us will look back and say, boy, maybe I wish I would have done more because of the glory that awaits us. Help us to be faithful to the vision that you've given your church in Jesus' name. Amen.